the driver for me is, can I be helpful? And so once I had that clarity about what was important to me, it was very obvious to me that nonprofit was going to be my way. Purpose Deep Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purpose Deep with Rhea Wong. Rhea is a fundraising consultant with a difference. She's a deep understanding of what it takes to be a successful fundraiser. She's gained this through her own experience two key things that kind of jump out of her work. Firstly, she believes that 8% of being a good fundraiser is your mind. So your own relationship, thoughts, feelings, and emotions around money and asking for money. And secondly, it's about the quality of the relationships that you build. Rhea is also an author, a podcaster. Enjoy the episode. Don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues. And you're on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Enjoy. Rhea Wong, welcome to Purposely. Mark, it is so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you're sitting in New York. I'm sitting in Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand. You've had a big couple of days. Thanks for joining. Yeah, I've been traveling a little bit. Uh, I think the pandemic is definitely officially over because everyone is back to it. So I just got back from Boston last night. Wonderful. You're an author. You're a podcaster. You're a comedian. But your main gig, your main focus, your day-to-day focus is as a fundraiser and as a consultant. How did you end up sort of falling in love with fundraising? Oh my gosh, Mark, that is such a great question. So we have to go way in the way back time machine, uh, back to 2005. For your young listeners, that may seem like a millennium ago, but I was a 26-year-old executive director here in New York City. I was, um, you know, frankly, in retrospect, I as a 26-year-old, I had no business running a nonprofit, but, you know, at the age of 26, I was full of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, unfounded confidence. And my first day on the job, I did uh, two Google searches. Google search one was, what does an executive director do? <laughs> I love that. And the second Google search was, uh, how do you fundraise? Because up to that point, I had only done, you know, like fun run marathon fundraisers. I'd never been properly responsible for like actual fundraising. And so over the course of 12 years, I, along with my team, I I can't take all the credit, we ended up getting the organization to where we were raising $3 million a year in private money, which is not an insignificant sum of money. And I actually, for a a really long time, kind of had a, well, I, I hated it, to be honest. I did not like fundraising because number one, I was never really properly trained in how to fundraise, which I think is Common really to common. a lot of people in the sector. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I call everyone accidental fundraisers, right? It's like, it's kind of crazy. You get this job where fundraising is supposed to be a big part of it, but you've never received proper training, 100%. which is insane to me. It's like you wouldn't go to a doctor who hasn't been to medical school. Anyway, and it really wasn't until I kind of unpacked my own relationship to money and my own baggage with money that I started to actually enjoy fundraising because at its core, fundraising is really just about making friends. It's about building relationships and it's about building a community of people who care about the thing that you care about. And when framed in that way, then it's like, oh, well then I love fundraising. Like that's easy. I I can talk to anybody about anything, but for the longest time I dreaded it because I made it about the money. Um, We can go deeper into that if you want to. Love to touch on just that, yeah, you know, that early nonprofit. What did they do? Just for a bit of context, like what was the cause? Oh yeah, yeah. So we were a, an educational organization. We worked with low-income kids who were, you know, highly motivated, high potential academic, and supported them for ten years to and through college. 
wonderful. And that discomfort with the money conversation or that, you know, not necessarily having a great relationship with fundraising, did it make you feel like you were somehow fraudulent? Like what was the, what was the feeling behind it? What did you unpack that you kind of got over or got around? Yeah, it's such a good question. So I tell the story a lot. So those who've been through my trainings will hear it. So I would go on these asks and I would ask for money, but I would feel very anxious about it. I would feel very stressed. I would be very anxious about being rejected. You know, I was lucky that I had very understanding funders and, and I had a good story and a pretty good personality. So I was really successful at it, but I didn't enjoy it. And it wasn't until I unpacked my own relationship to money that I started to understand why I didn't enjoy it. And the reason is back when I, so I grew up in San Francisco, it was the height of the AIDS and crack epidemics. And there are lots of homeless people in San Francisco. And I remember being eight years old, walking down the street with my dad. And there was an older man with the, you know, little sign that said, homeless vet, please help. And I dug into my pocket and I gave him a quarter. And my dad saw it and he whipped around and he said, oh, you're, so you're so rich now, you can just give money away? And in that moment, I felt shame. You know, when you're a kid, you just feel like I'm in trouble. I, I didn't know what I did, but I was in trouble. And it wasn't until I reflected on it many, many years later that I realized that in my family, money represented security and stability. And so psychologically, and look, my family was very middle class. We didn't want for anything, but my grandparents had immigrated from China. And they were very poor. And so in my family, money was to be hoarded. Money meant stability and security. And so by giving money away, we were compromising our own family. We were putting our own family at risk, even though that wasn't technically true, but that was the psychological feeling. Yeah. And I think money is a big trigger for people emotionally. Anyway, I'll just say that uh, without actually examining my own money story, I was projecting that onto my donors and asking them subconsciously to A, give of their own stability and security, and B, to experience the shame that I had experienced when I gave money away. And it really wasn't until I remembered that story that I was like, oh, hold on, maybe that's just a story I'm telling myself. And maybe other people have a different relationship with money. And, it, and once I kind of reckoned with the fact that not everyone's story was my story, that I started to really enjoy fundraising because I could take the emotional baggage out of it. It's quite an insight to have on yourself. Like what helps you get to that sort of level of clarity? Because a lot of people never, never arrive at that, do they? And they just leave fundraising or they change careers or whatever they do. But what were the sort of, um, have you always been someone who's been quite reflective of who you are and what you, what you are? You know, I, I have, but I also really want to make sure that I give credit where credit is due. I did this incredible training with Jennifer McRae at Harvard. Um, so if Jennifer's listening, thank you for that. But she really helped me to go back through my memory bank of like, why is it that I have this emotional feeling about money? And so we know that the way the brain works is that our memories are formed when we have a strong emotional experience, either good or bad, right? And it really help me to go back in time like, oh, this moment of being eight years old has formulated my entire experience of money. And so it, with my students, I go through this practice of, well, what did you hear growing up? What did you feel? What did you see growing up? And I'm packing it a little bit because in my family, all I ever heard were things like, well, money doesn't grow on trees. And who do you think we are? The Rockefellers? And oh, that's for rich people, not for us. And the only times I really ever saw my parents fight was about money, right? So is it any wonder that 
deep down psychologically, I had this idea that money is the source of conflict. You know, money is scarce. We're never going to have enough of it. It, You know, abundance is for other people, not for us, right? And so reiterating that the whole life, I never even questioned it because I just thought like, well, that's how it is, right? That's just a fact. And then I started to be willing to be wrong about that. And it really just changed my whole perspective on life. And did you talk to your siblings about this? No, I haven't. Actually, that's funny. I I probably should. I will say that I think my, I, so I have two younger brothers. I think they're generally less navel gazing than I am. <laughs> they just sort of take life as it comes. So I don't even know that they w- would agree with me. Because yeah. at one point I, I remember this, I, I tried to ask them kind of a, psychological question about our parents and our family dynamics. And they just looked at me like I had three heads. And I was like, okay, obviously you two have never thought about this. <laughs> Fine. Um, and growing up in California, and you talked about difficult time for San Francisco, but good childhood, good memories of that, like happy childhood? Yeah. I mean, l- largely a happy childhood. You know, it's funny, Mark. I So I, I was really reflecting on this recently about the decisions that we make in life. And you know, I don't know if you know much about um, the Asian culture, but girls and you know young women are, I think, really seen as like you have to be responsible. And so, being the oldest daughter of a family of three, I really felt a lot of responsibility for my my brothers, for my parents, for you know making sure that I was like pretty neurotic. You know, so I was like always getting the good grades, working extra hard. And so at the age of 14, I actually sent myself off to boarding school, which I think is a very weird thing in retrospect, but at the time it felt normal. And boarding school was really the first time in my life that I had the freedom to be just me. um, Because I think prior to that, I had so much self-imposed, I will say, I don't think this had to do with my parents, but like self-imposed anxiety and uh, responsibility for my brothers and my family. Been able to put some distance between you and your family. Did you really come out of your shell? I mean, Mark, I don't know if you can tell. I, I've always been way, way, way out of my shell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the difference was for the first time I could just, I could actually just relax a little bit and just enjoy being a kid. I wasn't like a happy-go-lucky. Like when people talk about their happy-go-lucky childhoods, I have no relationship to that. I'm like, oh, I was like a very anxious kid, I think. I mean, neurotic, still a little neurotic, but I don't know. For some reason, I always kind of had the weight of the world on my shoulders. So, you know, big surprise that I chose a career nonprofit where I'm actually taking on the weight of the world on my shoulders. But I think I've always had a really deep sense of responsibility for the world, for myself, for my family, for my community. Um, which is wonderful in some ways and very heavy in others. And what was your sort of relationship with your parents in terms of they they would have seemed very different to the other parents, like you said, they were immigrants from from China. And um, what was your relationship with your sort of Chinese identity? Is it always something you've you know you embraced, loved, or was it difficult to traverse? Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting, Mark, because actually it it was my grandparents who immigrated. So my parents are both born in the U.S. So I think there's a very different relationship being Asian American, like second generation Asian American. So my experience of that has always been, well, I feel lucky having grown up in San Francisco, which has a very large and strong Asian American population. So I never really felt other in that particular way. But I do think outside of the bubble of San Francisco, I've never felt 
fully American enough or, and when I go to Asia, I'm never fully Asian enough. Mm. So I once spent a summer in Hong Kong uh, in the summer of 97 and it was the first time I'd been to Asia and I was like, I'm going to go and they're going to accept me and embrace me. It's like a, you know, the prodigal son. And I got there and it, it was very clear that they that they did not accept me. I was called an ABC or American born Chinese, which is, you know, second class citizen to uh, Hong Kong born Chinese. But the other piece is when I'm in the US, particularly when I'm outside of urban centers like San Francisco or New York, I, you know, I encounter people who say things like, well, where are you from? But like, where are you really from? Yeah. Right. It's like, I'm from San Francisco. Yeah. Oh, you speak English so well. Yeah, because it's my first language. Yeah, I was born here. I was born, my, mm. my parents were born here. Like I'm a native English, you know, so there's always that sense of being othered, even though I am oh, actually third generation American because my grandparents were here. And in terms of like, it feels like a lot's changed, but is that a living reality? Like is, is being Asian American, you know, way more empowered now? And in terms of, I'm thinking in terms of like, you know, people to look up to culturally sort of empowered you, you know you do you experience racism walking down the street still yeah i mean it's 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 really interesting you ask that mark i will say i don't i think things are probably better than they were but i don't think that they're great i mean when we think about especially you know this year we've seen so much violence against asian and asian women in particular in america i don't know if you've uh, caught wind of that in new zealand but we had a shooting of eight Asian women in Atlanta. We had uh, a bunch of cases here in New York where Asian women were, um, one was pushed onto the subway tracks, another one was stabbed in her apartment. There have been attacks on elderly Asian people. I think in large part, it's due to a lot of the stuff that Trump was fanning the flames of, um, calling it you know the, the Chinese flu and, and whatever. So look, I, I don't think racism is dead. I think it is alive and well in America. You know, and the other thing is I will say, generally, I don't feel like I'm a target of racism, except for the fact back in 2019, in my local grocery store, this is so wild, it's a grocery store I go to like three times a week, um, and there was this man there, and he was you know, clearly not fully in his right mind. I think he was also drunk, but I, I sort of like bumped past him a little bit on my way to the cashier because he was sort of taking up a lot of room. And he just, he started screaming at me, you know, saying like, you're an animal, go back to where you came from. And it, like, I froze, everybody froze and nobody said anything. And I just, and it, it blew my mind. It's like, everyone knows me here. I literally come to the grocery store three times a week. And so I think what we what I take from that is that we have to be upstanders, not just bystanders, right? Like I was frozen. I didn't know what to do. And I would really have appreciated if somebody had spoken up and supported me, but nobody really did, except for the young woman who was ringing me up, who, you know, she was Muslim American. As far as I could tell, she had a hijab and she sort of whispered like, I am so sorry. Mm. You know, but I was like, it's not her job to be sorry on behalf of everyone else. But like, Everyone has witnesses, and yet nobody said a thing. So there's a very long way, Mark, of saying that I think there's been some progress, but I don't think we're there. And because you, you're a really confident person, I know you jump on stage and you're a really, you know, confident communicator. Did that stuff diminish your self-esteem? Like, did it play a part? And what did it actually inspire you to go on and achieve, like being an outsider in a country that sometimes treated you badly? 
Yeah, it's it's a funny thing, Mark. I think in part it's because I did grow up with such a strong sense of self in the San Francisco community is I actually did realize I was other. Like I <laughs> it wasn't until I went to boarding school in Southern California that I realized like all of the world wasn't Chinese American, you know? So <laughs> I was like, oh, you don't eat chicken feet uh, as like a normal thing? That's weird. So I think that that is, you know, I really credit my upbringing. I credit my parents for kind of letting me be me. I mean, I think I probably broke out of the womb with opinions um, and a mic in my hand. So, you know, I, I think that I've never really let other people's opinions of me stop me. But again, it's hard to know. I, I I can only know my own life experience, but I, which is not to say that like I'm not bothered sometimes when people are negative or are racist or say things, but I try not to let that hold me back. Mm. And you know, like you said yourself, you took yourself off to to boarding school, which is is, is phenomenal. But you ended up in Canada at university to study political science by the look of it. So h- how did that come about? Because you know, Canada, San Francisco to Canada is not necessarily a straight path? Yeah, well it, well, it was San Francisco to Ojai, California. What you probably don't see in my bio is I actually spent my junior year abroad in France. So I was in a French family who I am still in contact with. They're lovely people. But, you know, I was a 16-year-old. I had two years of high school French, which, as you know, is basically nothing. <laughs> yeah. I was living in this really lovely French family. They didn't speak a word of English. And so the first few months were very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, full immersion, I ended up learning French because if I didn't, it'd be a very lonely nine months. And it just happened that while I was there, I had met a lot of kids who were, you know, whose parents worked for the UN and they all talked about McGill. I'd actually never heard of McGill prior to that. And so I ended up applying to a bunch of schools. And funny, actually, I'd spent a, a postgrad year in London as well. So I've been sort of bouncing back and forth countries for a little while. But, um, you know, I, I it's sort of a, a statement about the state of American education. I had applied to a bunch of schools. It was down to three, two private universities here in the U.S., Wesleyan, Columbia in New York, and McGill. And my parents basically said that, like, we've saved up this amount of money for your college tuition— Anything above and beyond that, you're going to have to take out a loan for yourself. And I calculated that if I'd gone to Columbia or Wesleyan, I would be in debt until I was 40 for my undergraduate degree. So I decided, I think I'm going to go to McGill. (laughs) (laughs) So living in Montreal? Living in Montreal, yeah. I have to tell you that first first winter was a real shock to the system coming from California. Is this a joke? Mm. (laughs) Do you people live like this year-round? This is terrible. Because you go from all year sunshine to some really deep, you know, winters, right? I know. Well, it's almost like uh, it's better that you don't know what you don't know. I mean, if I, if, you know, it's funny, I'm not really, like, when I think about the scale of, like, conscientiousness, I'm probably, like, low conscientious. I'm sort of of the opinion, like, I don't know, we'll figure it out. It'll be fine. Like, I'm not the kind of person to, you know, sit and think about plans A through Z, which like sometimes has bitten me in the ass, I will be honest, but other times I think it served me really well because if I had actually known how cold Canada was going to be, I may not have done it. And it was a wonderful experience. If I had known how hard it was going to be to learn French without really speaking French beforehand, like I might not have done it. So there have been many instances in my, in my life where I've jumped first and asked questions later. Being an executive director, another example of jumping first and asking questions later. So yeah. things have generally worked out. Could I have been more prepared in some cases? Sure. 
And political science, did you want a, a job of government? Or was that, were you quite um, clear about what you wanted to do? Oh, well, it's f- funny you should ask that. Um, no, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I did spend a summer working for UNICEF in Ethiopia, uh, in the summer of 2000, summer of 2000? Yeah. And I thought that I would maybe want to work for an IGO, like UNICEF or, you know, Save the Children or something. And I think that summer I spent in Ethiopia was very eye-opening as to the ways in which IGOs and NGOs work. And so that was clearly not going to be for me. I really debated, and I'm glad I did not do, the, I call it the default smart persons thing to do, which is to go to law school after college. Mm. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, I don't really know very many happy lawyers, but I thought I was on a path to journalism. So I was the ed-in-chief of our campus newspaper. I had all these you know, internships at various media outlets. Uh, and so my first proper job out of college, I was working for Mother Jones Magazine in San Francisco. This is back in, what, 2002. I was a fact checker. And I was like, you know, I feel like this internet thing is not going to go away. Like I saw the writing on the wall. I was like, mm, feeling like print journalism is probably not a growth industry. So, Mark, I decided to go make my fortune in nonprofit. <laughs> and in terms of the NGO experience, what just start reflecting a little bit on what you saw, what you didn't like. What was that you didn't like? I mean, it was grateful for the opportunity. I'm really glad that I did it. But I, I think I became quite cynical about the um, NGO scene, if you will. So in, so I was working with street children in Ethiopia. So if you could imagine the poorest of the poor, and these were children who literally all they owned was the clothes on their back, and they would make their money shining shoes for pennies on the street. Um, I saw, I mean, it was terrible. I saw child prostitutes. I saw war orphans. I saw child soldiers just really heartbreaking stuff and kids who lived on the street every night in Addis Ababa and in other parts of the country. And meanwhile, you had this expat community, you know, living very, very well in beautiful houses with cooks and drivers and security guards and going to fancy meals at the Sheridan and the Hyatt. And the discrepancy between the way that they were living as expats in, and, and these were people working for like UNICEF and the WHO. These were not, you know, private sector folks. And I don't know. There was just such a discrepancy between the people that they were there to supposedly serve and their lifestyle, and I found really distasteful. I also found the bureaucracy to be really cumbersome. So I remember once I submitted a report on um, a bunch of street children projects that we were funding throughout the Rift Valley and uh, in Addis, and I had to go through this ridiculous process to. Quest more staples in triplicate. I mean, it was it was like a you know an episode of The Office. I was like, is this for real? And I was like, oh right, bureaucratic waste. Like the amount of time and energy I just spent to fill out this form in triplicate and then walk it down to the supply room to get the staples was worth more than the staples. So there was that. And then you know the final thing for me, Mark, was. It really showed me who I was as a person. So I had always thought of myself as a very compassionate person. 
And the truth is like the scale of need and poverty in Ethiopia is such that, I mean, literally I would step over dying, starving people in the street on the way to work. And you just, you can't stop for everyone because you would never get to work. And I just didn't know about myself until I did it, that I was the kind of person who could just step over someone on my way to work. Yeah. And that strong sense of kind of purpose and mission that you were feeling, that real disappointment in what you saw as one of the solutions, I wouldn't, did that not think, actually, I'm going to run away from this nonprofit world, like, or, but you ended up throwing yourself into it. Was it because what you found back in the States in that sector was there was, it was more sort of balanced to it. People were using scarce resources to make an impact. Like what made you stay in it after that bad experience? Do you think or double down? I think it was in part deciding there was a lot of things that I could be doing in my own country, you know, domestically. And so did that. But then I, I think I was just had this realization pretty early on once I started working, I, I did this exercise because, you know, and the nonprofits were like very big into professional development, self-discovery exercises, right? So it was the exercise was to write a, a personal mission statement for your life. And I was sitting there, I was like 22 years old and I was just you know, drafting some things and something just hit me like lightning. And it was so strong, Mark, I'd still get chills thinking about it. It became very clear to me. It was almost like a... a I don't know, like a bolt of lightning, almost like a divine intervention of like the purpose for my life is to help people maximize their lives. And I just, and I really believe that that's true. And so for me, that means I was in education for many years, but I, I could have been in anything. I could have been in animal welfare. I could have been in domestic violence. I could have been in health, right? Because to me, what is the purpose of our existence on this planet if we can't help other people? to maximize their time on this planet. Yeah. So I decided early on, like the thing that drives me was not going to be money, right? I, I love money. I love making money. I, I'd like to have a comfortable life like anybody else, but money is not going to be the driver for me. Fame is not the driver. Status is not the driver. Power is not the driver. The driver for me is, can I be helpful? And so once I had that clarity about what was important to me, it was very obvious to me that nonprofit was going to be my way forward. Now, that being said, like I could have been in for-profit and engaged in charitable activities and volunteerism and all of that. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think I've been so lucky that in this sector, I've just met the most tremendous people. And generally, nonprofit people tend to be very nice people, right? So mm. I just think, I don't know. I, I, th I think I've been very lucky to find a home in a sector that is so welcoming and, and so concerned about making positive change happen in the world. So that finding your purpose and the real clarity around it. So how, how many years has, have you had that? And do you fall, do you kind of rally back on that? And, and does that keep you sort of on those really dark days when, when it's really tough and works frustrating and people, you know, aren't delivering, do you literally go back to that, that kind of purpose and, and that gives you sort of life meaning? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I really use that as kind of a North star, for some of the bigger, tougher decisions I've made. 
You know, and I, I think the other thing is, too, I have the great fortune of now running my own business. And so I've been able to minimize aggravations. Like if, if I find somebody really very aggravating, I just don't work with them. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really grateful that I have that kind of freedom. But I mean, look, Mark, the thing I think about a lot, uh, I've actually, my, my therapist called me a death junkie, but I think about, I do the thing that Buddhists tell you to do is every day contemplate death. Like, we're all going to die at some point. It could be today. I hope not, but it could be, right? It could happen at any moment. And so what are we doing to make the most of the time that we have on this planet? Like that's really my sort of filtering principle. It's like if today were my last day, would would I be happy with what I did today, with who I talked to, with what I accomplished? Most days it's like, yeah, I feel pretty good about it. Wonderful. And launching your own company and going out on your own, super challenging, much harder than you thought it was going to be. Has it been quite a steady rise to success? That's so kind of you. I don't know if I can say it's a rise to success. I still feel like things are rising. So it was actually by accident. So I was an executive director, as I mentioned, for 12 and a half years. I left at the end of 2017, after, you know, basically spending my entire professional life in that one role, I joined a tech firm for about two and a half months and decided that that was not going to be a fit for me. Right. And honestly, I was kind of set adrift for a little while because here I had left this job as a nonprofit executive that really was defining for me. I mean, I, I think in many ways, you know, our jobs become our identity. And I, my identity was I'm the executive director of Breakthrough New York, right? It took me so long to stop answering my phone. Like, hi, Rhea, Breakthrough New York. I was like, no, I'm, I, I'm just Rhea. And then this other job, you know, didn't pan out because I thought my next stage was going to be in a tech exec and that didn't work. And so I was, I was a little bit adrift, but there was also some freedom in it. Like, oh, I can just decide to do whatever I want to do. And so I mean, I'd like to say that I had a whole strategic plan behind it, but I mean, the truth is I became a consultant by accident. What did you like about tech? What was the what was the sort of thing that really, you, you made a quick decision, right, within two months, but because, you you know, you hustle, you've got, you you apply, you, 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 um, you've you got confidence, like how come that didn't quite pan out? Well, <laughs> let's just say, I don't want to, I don't want to badmouth anyone, but let's just say that the, the, the culture of the organization was not a fit with my values. Let's say that. Yeah. Cause tech, you know, that like you grew up with tech, like, over, you know, right in your doorstep, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it was, a, it was a small tech firm. I think that the leadership and I were not entirely on the same page about the way that things should be done or the ways in which people should be treated. And so I just think it was clear to me that this was not going to be a long-term relationship. Did you call them out? I sort of did, but I also, at this point, I don't even think that he was even ready to hear it. So it was a little bit like, I, you know, why even bother? Mm. So it, it's interesting. I resonate with a lot of the great resignation and the quiet quitting that's going on because I, I think the truth is like most people have terrible bosses. Most people have terrible managers. And like, if you don't have to put up with it, then why would you? Life is short. Yeah. And going back to what you said earlier about feeling responsible as the eldest and, you know, you've got your parents' expectations around, or well, maybe, maybe you didn't, but did you... You know, that 
that been seen as a potential failure? Did you feel under pressure to pull something else? Like, did you, do you remember that time being quite oh, stressed yeah. by it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. So, you know, I wrote about this uh, for a publication, but, you know, in my family, the highest sort of compliment we can give anybody is like, oh, he's a hard worker, right? Like we really value work. And so for that, that period of time where I didn't have a job, I felt, I mean, it was, it was self-imposed. I mean, my parents never put this on me, but I, I just felt like, what is my value if I don't have a job, if I'm not working, right? Because I had so long defined myself through the lens of work and what I could produce as a indication of my value, right? And that's particularly true, like in the nonprofit sector, it's like the more you work, like the the better you are doing as an executive director, the more money you're raising, and therefore you're you're a better ED. And so I was kind of set adrift, frankly, but I had a summer vacation for the first time in decades. So that was great. And then I just started taking on um, projects from friends of mine who were 80s. Like, oh, you have some free time? Let me let me give you a project. In that time, I also dabbled with launching a tech platform, which didn't really take off, but it was a fun exercise. So it, it, for the first time, I had the capacity and bandwidth to kind of play and explore what was next. And then the iteration of my company now, which is I do group coaching around fundraising really came about because I kept hearing the same problems over and over again, which is, you know, I'm sure you've heard it too. I'm having problems with fundraising. I've never been taught how to do it. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And I'm really anxious about it. And I was like, oh, I've solved that problem for myself. So let me help other people solve that problem. Yeah, as a fundraiser myself and someone who didn't, you know, didn't grow up wanting to be a fundraiser. I remember doing a sort of Harvard 101 fundraising, which is sort of that fundraising pyramid. And, you know, I, I remember that being really useful because that helped, some of that theory helps me. But the bit I didn't ever get was kind of, I didn't get help with the emotional side. So I love that about your, that your approach. But yeah, it's a, it is a real gap and people fall into it and then fall out of it and it's often a, a kind of gateway to other careers but so it's the transformation in those people that you and you start to develop some ideas around it being a little bit different with other training that was out there like it was quite unique yeah i mean so cuz i had been through trainings and all of it was really externally focused. Like, here's how you write a grant proposal. Here's how you do an annual appeal letter. Here's, you know, what you say to a donor, all of that stuff. But like anything else, I think it's an inside job. And so what I really, I hope, I hope what my students feel like I offer is a very different approach to fundraising that is focused on what are the shifts that I need to make internally in order for this to not only be sustainable for me, but to feel good for me, right? Because at the end of the day, like I could grind and I could white knuckle and I could, you know, be stressed out about it and still do it. But, you know, the burnout rate at in this sector is very high. And I think it's in part because we haven't made the right sort of internal shifts within ourselves to do the work over the long term. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's that. And I also think the other thing that I see that I'm, I'm really trying to push back on is the ways in which I think the most toxic sales tactics have bled into the nonprofit world, right? So like we talk about like, well, you just need to like, you know, have a pitch deck and then like you need to overcome their objections and da da da. And like, that's not how people give money. People give money from a relationship, from an emotional standpoint. I don't care how pretty your deck is. It's not 
the thing that's going to get me to give you money. What's going to help me to support your organization is I have to know, like, and trust you as a leader. I have to understand the change that you're making in the world, and you have to touch my heart. And that doesn't come from a fancy deck. It doesn't come from some magical combinations of words that I, you know, put together in my elevator pitch. I'm like, the elevator pitch makes me crazy, Mark. I, I can't, I just cannot with it. And so I talk about this, but I, I just really genuinely think I'm teaching people how to have conversations like a human being. <laughs> yeah. And how did you feel around, so charging people to, you know, to be useful for them, to help them unlock their potential? Like, did, was that difficult at first? Like, talk us through, like, first clients, maybe some missteps or it being a bit weird to begin with, or was it, or did it all sort of come relatively naturally? Being a fundraiser, I feel like you have to be comfortable talking about money. I mean, I will say that I my initial pricing was probably pretty low. I've increased the pricing. I think what I'm really trying to figure out the messaging around is that we know that nonprofits are very price sensitive. We know that nonprofits generally tend to knee-jerk believe like we can't afford it. So I think what I'm really trying to figure out is how do we help nonprofits get into a different mind frame of it's not an expense, it's an investment. Because what I offer is I'm helping you to build the capacity to raise more money. Like it's, it, you know, math, right? Like you give me this amount of money, I help you raise, you know, 10x the amount that you've invested. It's a good investment. And sometimes I think because people are so deep into scarcity that they don't actually see the very clear ROI on what I offer. And so I try to make, I try not to take it personally and or I try to figure out how I can better communicate my value add but it just seems to me like I'm out here, you know, pouring in my best stuff. I'm constantly learning, right? So I have the luxury of being able to spend the time to learn the best and most cutting edge tactics and strategies out there. In fact, on next Monday, I'm doing a training that I paid $1,000 for about negotiations specifically so I can bring it to my students, right? So I'm investing in my brain. I need my students to invest in their brains. And frankly, you know, for the people who listen to me, you know, we go through a sales call and they decide that I'm not the right fit for them. Like, totally fine. That's great. But don't make it about the money. Yeah. Yeah. And always hear from people who do what you do, which is, you know, working in and on the, and on the business are two different things. Tell us about how hard that is. And every day you've got to be on it, right? You've got to be, you've got to give that sense of, I'm going to be impressive today because these people are, you know, they're really looking to me for, for value. You know, it's so funny. I don't actually ever think about I have to be impressive today um, because I, I think that's probably like a, a recipe for disaster. I think I go into it being thinking about like, how am I going to be the best version of myself today, right? Or how am I going to add the most value today? Right. Because the thing is, like, I am who I am and people know who I am. I, we have a sales call. There's, they're under no misconception that I'm a different person. Right. I have a lot of stuff out on the internet. So, if, like, you, if you want to research me, like, there's plenty of content out there. So, for me to pretend that I'm something other than I am is going to be a problem because I have a lot of examples of exactly who I am. So, I think there's that. I think the other thing for me is just really wanting to make sure that people feel that I'm delivering 
or over-delivering value. My coaching program is not inexpensive. Um, and I want people to feel like they're getting a deal, like they're getting a steal based on how much value I am delivering to them. Do you, are you a workaholic? Like, do you spend way too much time working? I mean, it depends on whose definition of too much. Because <laughs> <laughs> you got a, you've written a book, you've, as I said earlier, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you've, you've done over 200 episodes for your podcast, which is phenomenal. And I, 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 have. I, I totally get that. You, you know, part of it is getting, because you're attaching your business to your personal brand and mm-hmm. and getting yourself out there is so important. Yeah. Like, do you, what does, what does the week look like for Rhea Wong? Like, how many hours are you hustling? I need to get better about like organizing. Well, so, so the first thing I will say is, am I a workaholic? I probably am. And, and I think I'm a workaholic in like the most technical sense in the, like, I do work a lot, but I also think, and this is true, particularly in my executive director days, I probably used work as a way to avoid other things in my life that I didn't necessarily want to think about. Like, you know, I had, especially in when I was an ED, I had lots of friends who moved away because I was at the age where people get married and have kids and leave the city, right? So I was lonely. I didn't really have that many friends anymore in the city. And I, I think I used work as an outlet to ignore the fact that I had sort of lost some community there. I think any ED will tell you that this is true. Like there was a period of time in my marriage that would, things were really on the rocks because I had given the best of myself to my job. Like I was literally a workaholic in the way that people are alcoholics, right? I, I used it to like numb things. I don't think I do that anymore, but I do work a lot because I love what I do, quite honestly. Now, is every single day sunshine and roses? No, of course. Like there are aggravating things that happen every day. But um, I think I've also become a lot better at managing my calendar. So for example, Mondays and Fridays, generally I don't plan any meetings so that I can focus on deep work. You know, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, I'll have meetings, but I do try to block out time to actually get real work done because I'm sure I'm sure this is true for you too, Mark. Like you have a full day of meetings and at the end you're like, okay, great. It's seven o'clock. Now I actually get to do proper work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to organize myself a little bit more and figure out how to manage my attention. I mean, I was just thinking about it this morning that like I'm probably spending an inordinate amount of time on stupid things like checking my phone. So I have deleted all social media apps off my phone except for LinkedIn. I am still on LinkedIn. I deleted the New York Times app off my phone because I was just picking up my phone and doom scrolling every five minutes. I should probably just delete a whole bunch of other stuff. Like we spend so much stupid time wasted on our phones and not connecting or not even doing productive work. So I think I need to, you know, figure that out. And then you know, the other thing is too, I also, gen- I'm trying to be better about not working on the weekends, but generally I kind of work a couple hours on the weekends just to catch up with things. So am I perfect? No. Am I trying to get better? Yeah. But the other thing is I really love working. I, I love what I do. I love learning. I love working with my clients, especially when I feel like I've been able to help them. I love a lot of the content creation that I'm doing. So I don't know. Is it too much? I also don't have kids, so I can really focus. (laughs) So, Ray, yeah, we talked about this a bit earlier, but you're an author. Like, tell us about that process. Was it really super challenging? 
Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. I always believed that I had a book in me. I thought it was the great American novel. Turns out it was a fundraising book. Who knew? It was really fun. Actually, it was a pandemic project. I was able to hook back up with one of my former students, Bella Masucci, who found herself without a job because she was in event planning in Miami. So obviously the pandemic put a bit of a, a wrench in the works for her. And she was a she is a writer. And I said, well, why don't you help me write my book? Um, and it was really a fun collaborative process. And so I, it, it's kind of a workbook. You know, Mark, I'm sure you've read a lot of the nonprofit books. They tend to be very dry and very boring. So I decided to write a book that was not that. And so it's called Get That Money, Honey, The No Bullshit Guide to Raising Money for Your Nonprofit. And yeah, so it stood out to me. It that, punches you right in the face. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's nothing subtle about me. So why should the book be? But I really wrote it with the eye towards how can I make this the most helpful, valuable book for people? You know, so even if you don't take my online coaching course, how can I still provide value to you? So look, maybe you can't afford the tuition, but maybe you can afford $15 to buy the book. And what was the process of writing it like? So you're doing it with someone else. So were you, you know, I talked to a lot of people about you know, the, the pain of it, I guess, but they all talk about being really disciplined and, and getting up super early in the morning and writing, which to me sounds horrendous, but what was your process like? Yeah, I was very lucky. I did not have to do that. So, so I actually had a ton of content that I had already produced either v via my podcast, via my blogs, via my online course. So essentially I said to Bella, like, I'm going to, dump all this information on you and can you shape it up into some sort of, you know, structure. She did a beautiful job. And then, you know, we went through a couple of edits. She would come back. I would, you know, make some changes. But it was a really seamless process, to be honest. And I think part of it was that I'd already produced so much content on the front yeah. end that I didn't have to, you know, do the wake up early. And So you transcribed podcast episodes like it was that sort of content? Yeah, we we transcribed podcast episodes. We looked at writing I'd done for other outlets. We looked at the blog. We looked at, you know, my online course. So essentially the the content is uh, my online course. So I had already produced all of that stuff. So it was really more uh, an exercise of curating and consolidating than it was creation of content. When you sell a copy, do you get do you get a buzz like that whole producing something and it and it kind of has a life of its own almost like and do you when you sort of look at yourself as an author does it like have to pitch yourself slightly go <laughs> didn't think I was going to be an author uh, I do a little bit I mean I, I I would be lying if I said that I didn't check the Amazon reviews <laughs> on some regular basis I'm like, do people like it um, so I'm very lucky I've received. Only five star reviews, so hopefully that continues. I have no haters. Well, I'm like I'm I'm like freaked out that someone's gonna say that it's like total crap. You yeah, know? I'm like ah, so far so good. You know, mostly I just really enjoy because to me, the highest compliment that anybody can give me about either my training or my work is like that was really helpful. Like I don't. I don't care about like, you like me, you don't like me, you think my personality is obnoxious, like those things don't bother me, but have I added value? Am I helpful? And so um, I was just talking to a friend of mine who had done a training with a bunch of other nonprofit execs and someone had dropped my book and said, you know, the best, most useful book I read this year was Rhea Wong's Get That Money, Honey. And someone else said, I know, I bought it for my whole team. It was so good. And I was like, oh. That is incredible. <laughs> you know what I thought? Cause so that, that does make that, me feel good. That would feel good. But what I thought, because 
you're all about relational fundraising and you're and you talked about the kind of relationship being key and when i read the you know get that money honey i was like ah actually you know at first i thought ah it's 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 transactional it's sales force your foot in the door but it it kind of it works to get your attention and then you find out ah rare actually is a kind of about relational fundraising really yeah, no, it, it's true. It, it feels like it's antithetical, right? Because get that money, honey, feels like transactional. Mm-hmm. That was really kind of an attention getter, and, and it, I think it's very aligned with my brand. Because my brand is pretty irreverent. I mean, I'm not a very formal person. I like to make jokes. Obviously, um, I like to not take it so seriously. Uh, but it is about how how do you really build relationships such that you can get that money, honey? Yeah, and and in your bio, you talk about being an aspiring comedian you spend you you know you're really good on your feet and you spend time and on stages has that been a bit of a discovery for you being a performer uh no not really i mean i've never really been an you know actor type person like i i think i was in one school play i think being a fundraiser has been helpful in terms of thinking on my feet certainly being a podcaster has i don't know if you found that to be true for you mark is that true for you yeah, I mean, you just I, you know, listened to the first 50 episodes I did and I, I probably couldn't listen to them. <laughs> but, um, you know, like you, you sort of, re- I think it's a comfort level, relax, that you, you don't panic in those moments where you think, oh, you know, what was I going to ask next? But yeah, what interests me is you, because you say about an aspiring comedian, I was thinking, when's Rhea going to describe herself as a comedian? Will that be, <laughs> tell us about the, the comedy specifically like oh the comedy yeah well, okay so this so this is fine so i've always loved comedy in fact in middle school i had a friend named sasha ellis i still remember this she and i would <laughs> we're so we're so geeky on fridays we would agree that we were going to watch saturday night live and stay up you know because it's usually quite late so we'd stay up on saturday night to watch saturday night live and this is before cell phones and whatever and we'd come back in Monday morning and just basically redo all of the sketches. Cool. <laughs> um, so I've always been a fan of comedy. And back in 2019, I made a promise to myself. I did a bucket list for that year. And I said, I'm going to finally do a tight five routine. It was always been my dream to do it. So November rolls around. I still haven't done it. So I signed up for a comedy class. And I do three lessons in the final project, I guess, is you do a tight five minutes. And Mark, I have to tell you, it's like the most nerve wracking thing ever to stand on the stage for five minutes with the light on you just telling jokes and yeah. hearing nothing, like crickets, right? Because actually open mics are terrible because everyone there just wants to tell their own jokes. So they're not even paying attention to you. They're just reading their own jokes. Uh, I, thought, I thought of it that So way. it doesn't even yeah. matter. Like, you might be funny, but it doesn't matter because no one's actually listening to you. Mm. Anyway, but I was hooked. I was like, this is amazing. Because the thing about telling a tight five is that it takes so much work to get to a tight five, right? Like, you have jokes, you try it out, it doesn't work, you discard, you try the next one. And so there's a process to it. There's delivery, there's timing, there's tone. I mean, it's it's such an interesting practice. But the other thing is, unlike other things, like, Unlike music, unlike, you know, art, unlike acting, you actually need an audience to be able to do your work. So I was going to open mics like every week 
And then, of course, the pandemic happens, right? Yeah. Puts a screeching halt to this open mic thing that I was doing. And I tried to do a couple of online open mics, and it, it was, like, painful because everyone's on mute. Awesome. Oh, <laughs> it's it's yeah. so awful. So the the pinnacle of my last stand-up routine, I was actually in San Francisco. It was so funny. It was this bar in San Francisco, and, and like, my, my routine is, like, not the most family-friendly it's not the most family friendly. And I'm standing there telling like dirty jokes my in front of my parents, my best friends, their parents, my brothers, and my born-again Christian aunt. Wow. And I just thought the nightmare is complete. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't believe that this is what's happening right now. Uh, but it was happening. And I did it and I didn't die and everything is fine. <laughs> yeah. And looking towards wrapping up. You know, we talked earlier about you, you're in New York. What does the future hold for you? Like, is California beckon in the end? Where do you want to take your business? Have you got a strong sense of where you want to be in the future? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I actually spend the summer in San Francisco to be near my family. Because uh, as I get older and as my parents get older, I realize that family is much more, like I just need to carve out time. Because again, we're all going to die. We don't know when, but we need to make the most of the time that we're here. And it was wonderful to spend time with my nephew and nieces because they're getting older. And Anyway, so certainly really taking advantage of the location flexibility that I have working for myself. And actually the fun thing is, I will be in December heading back to my boarding school to be a visiting scholar. So education has always been my first love. And so it's going to be great to be among kids again. I'm going to have, I think they're going to be juniors and seniors that are going to take my class on social entrepreneurship. So I'm excited about that. Wonderful. And then, you know, hopefully a lot more travel coming up. I Now that the world is opening up a little bit, I, we owe my mother-in-law a trip to Japan. So hopefully we can make that happen soon. But yeah, I mean, just really enjoying life, Mark. Wonderful. Rear Wong, massive thank you for joining me on Purpose Day. Well, Mark, thank you so much. This is such a gift to actually walk through my life. I'm usually the one on the other side of the podcast, Mike. So this has been a treat. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 